folks, Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to The Daily Evolver. It's Thursday, November 2nd, 2017, and I'm very happy to be with you today and glad you're with me. Uh, today, I want to respond to uh, another listener. I love getting stuff from you, from you folks. Again, Jeff at dailyevolver.com, or you can send me a, a, a voice memo through the, that. Um, and uh, you can also register for these um, Zoom um, uh, uh, webcasts, and you can make comments in real time and so forth. But I love hearing from you. So this is from a, a listener and who's also a friend. I know him. And, you know, he and I have uh, a kind of a friendly argument around um, uh, climate. You know, we both sort of agree with what needs to be done, but we have very different stories about how it all works. And um, uh, I think he may have called me a denier at the time or two, and I, I may have called him an alarmist. I do not recall. But at any rate, it's all been friendly. Uh, it, but he sends me a, um, uh, a, um, a, a, an article from a writer called Dmitry Orloff. And he writes, if you honestly see how technology or the evolution of consciousness, it can overcome or sidestep one or more of the four trends that Orloff suggests here, that they are pretty much inevitable, please let me know how. So I think, okay, because you know, I might learn something here. So I look at this uh, article by Dmitry Orlov called The Shape of the Future. And he starts out by saying, I believe that the general shape of the future can be guessed at by focusing on the following four factors. One, weather. Two, energy. Three, population. And four, geopolitics. Let's look at each one. So he starts with weather, and I'm certainly not going to read the whole thing. It's not all that long, actually, but I'm going to read the first paragraph of the first section on weather. So he starts. The short-term shifts in weather, driven by longer-term climate change resulting from dramatically increased atmospheric carbon dioxide and methane levels, are already having several important impacts that are plain to see. Tropical cyclones are more intense and wetter, resulting in massive floods and infrastructure damage. Just this year's storms have knocked out much of Houston, quite a bit of Florida, and virtually all of Puerto Rico, and a few other islands in the Caribbean. Meanwhile, unprecedented fires have ravaged parts of California and the Pacific Northwest. Tens of thousands of people have been displaced or rendered homeless. Such trends are likely to continue as these destructive events grow in intensity. And, you know, so I'm reading so far so good in terms of a, you know, summation of what's been happening uh, this year alone. Then he goes on. For a time, people will attempt to recover and rebuild after each event. But after a while, these efforts will cease. In rebuilding, I am quite certain that most people ref will refuse to take reasonable steps to avoid repeats. People will refuse to take reasonable steps to avoid repeats, such as building houses on pilings or out of non-flammable materials. Instead, they will put up the same flammable, flood-prone structures, 
because that's what they think a house should look like. And at this point, I think I'm slightly offended on, on behalf of humanity. And I think, do I have to read the rest of this? And, you know, this is where environmentalism jumps the shark, you know, with these, um, you know, not necessarily with the analysis of what's happening. Uh, that's, you know, hard science can always correct us there, even though we tend to blow off course, depending on our ideology. But in terms of the scenarios and the idea that people will get tired and, and these efforts at rebuilding will cease and they'll just put, keep putting up the same structures because that's what they think a house should look like. It's just crazy, actually. And it's funny, I, I had a journalism professor who in college who said that most people tend to believe what they read until the, what they're reading covers something that they actually experienced. And then they realize, well, it's, you know, it's a little, a little slipperier than that. Uh, and, you know, in this case, I have firsthand experience from uh, living in Florida for eight years. And in Florida, um, I mean, it's just the exact opposite. I mean, after, after Hurricane Andrew in 1992, which was a huge Category 5 hurricane that I think caused the greatest amount of damage still. Um, but at any rate, it was huge, hit Miami. And after that, there was a whole new set of building codes that came online for the state for coastal properties. And uh, everything had to be built at least 18 feet, 18 feet above median high tide. And if you were close to the uh, beach, that mean, means you had to put your house up on stilts, which is what ours was. Ours was built 18 feet up with these breakaway walls and underneath the house, uh, you know, you could have 18 feet of water flow through and really not bother uh, the living quarters. Now, you know, those standards have continued to increase over the years. It's now for new construction, 22 feet above median high tide. Uh, we had to have hurricane glass. And they have glass now that will withstand winds of 200 miles an hour. And I remember them demonstrating it with by hitting a two by four into the glass at 100 miles an hour. And, you know, it survived. You have to have that. And um, I'm, I'm not there anymore, but I have friends. It's, it's actually Bonita Springs, which is right where the Hurricane Irma went through. Uh, and, uh, you know, I saw in the news that Neville, I remember the headline, Naples devastated. That's the town next to where we were. And, you know, I looked and saw these pictures of the, the homes underwater. And, um, and it turns out that that happened, of course. And it happened along the rivers. It happened, and it was actually a trailer court that they showed. Uh, but by and large, the town had trees blow over. They actually come and set them back up again and stake them in, and they live. These trees have very uh, shallow roots. And, um, you know, they're basically fine uh, now. And um, now that's Florida. And Florida, because of Andrew, is really ahead of the curve, I think, further ahead than Houston was, and certainly Puerto Rico. And so we see the devastation in Puerto Rico. And, you know, aside from all of whatever bungling and mendacity of the Trump administration, which I'm not going to get into because um, I don't haven't sorted it out. 
But we could just see that from a developmental perspective, Puerto Rico had more traditional structures. You know, they, they didn't have modern structures. Uh, and, and that's just basically the, if you look at the story of these storms in Florida, I mean, we lived on a beach where there were houses that were built right on the sand and they had been there for 50 and 60 years. And the, finally some hurricane comes through and, and they're gone. Uh, and then they build them up on stilts. And that process is just sort of a natural process because people do rebuild better. That's why we don't still live in caves. So um, in Puerto Rico, they had a far uh, less developed structure that it, it was very, you know, when this category five hits it right in the bullseye, that's a great big devastation. But my view is, and I think history will bear this out, is that uh, Puerto Rico 10 years from now or five years from now will be a far better built, uh, you know, country or state or territory, island. Uh, and, and, you know, this is basically uh, the upside, of, if you could call it that, of Naomi Klein's what I think is somewhat misguided shock doctrine. You know, the idea that when traditional communities are wiped out by national, natural disasters, modernity, the next stage of de development, comes in and rebuilds. And yes, it is run on money. Uh, and yes, it is blind to culture and things that are not money. And that's something that we appreciate having pointed out and you know, brought into the system. And that's the sort of a postmodern view that's uh, you know, sort of a little bit reflexively anti-modern because it's pushing off of modernity and it sees all of the sins of modernity, uh, which are you know, largely environmental. Uh, and um, and on balance, you know, I'll take the deal because you know it's it's like uh, where is it? I, the Time magazine that came after the two storms, Jose and Irma. Uh, the headline: The storms keep getting stronger, and so do we. And uh, the opening paragraph of the article is: The Sunshine State didn't break; its cities didn't tumble. Yes, roughly 12 million Floridians lost power. Yes, up to 7 million were evacuated or dislocated. Yes, up to 600 shelters had to open across the state. But the shelters did open, fast. The people in harm's way did evacuate. And the first responders were there when they needed to be there. So that's, you know, modernity and how we will and are responding to climate change uh, at the same time that we're minimizing the causes of climate change. And we can argue about the speed and so forth, but I just want to point out that this is happening. I mean, in Miami, uh, my friend who lives down there was talking about, he's a civil engineer and he's just astonished at the, what they're doing with raising streets and putting pumping systems in and preparing for, you know, with new developments, uh, higher sea levels. You know, we're actually not frogs in a barrel, people. We, we, we do notice and we do respond and we are responding. Um, but that's, you know, that's nowhere in this article from Orlov. And, uh, and I just want to look at his other four categories. So that was weather. He talks about uh, geopolitics. He says, uh, he has three or four paragraphs. It's not, again, all that long. He says, political unrest is always a wild card. 
because it is difficult to predict when a certain previously docile population will suddenly erupt in violence. And it's actually not that hard. I mean, docile modern populations, first of all, don't suddenly erupt in violence. You might have pockets of it that are probably pre-modern in consciousness, but where you do, do see previously docile populations suddenly erupt is where you had some authoritarian lid on traditional and even pre-traditional people. So you have this mafia lid on these, you know, sort of tribal clannish, you know, religious warrior people. And when that gets taken off uh, by bombing Iraq, for instance, uh, you get previously docile people arise. Uh, uh, so, you know, we could actually sort that out. He talks about in energy, renewable sources such as wind generators and solar panels cannot be produced or maintained without a fossil fuels-based industry. Okay, I guess that's true for now. And produce a product, electricity, for which there won't be much demand once fossil fuels-based industry goes away. Uh, I don't even want to say about that. Population. Aside from, and perhaps coupled with factors such as weather and energy, certain populations will fail to thrive and will go through a die-off. The U.S. is going through a die-off right now, with alcoholism rates doubling in a decade and an epidemic of opioid abuse that rivals China's experience prior to the 1950s. The spirit of utter hopelessness now gripping the U.S. is similar to what happened in the former USSR after the Soviet collapse with similar demographic consequences. The spirit of utter hopelessness now gripping the U.S.? I mean, I think that says a lot more about his spirit than it does the spirit of the U.S. And, you know, this is the problem. I, I've heard of this Dmitry Orlov. I actually went to his website. He has a bunch of books. He's, you know, has a following. He, um, you know, is a voice in this environmental movement. And it's like, gosh, you could see why uh, modern and, and traditional people just reject environmentalism as it is um, often uh, uh, articulated by this progressive edge that is religiously environmental. And let me just sort of put a little bit of context in that statement. Uh, environmentalism, we can look at, there's really two phases that you can look at, modern environmentalism and postmodern environmentalism. And modern environmentalism came on in my lifetime, and I'm in my 60s. And when I was a kid, uh, people would throw their trash out of the windows as they drove by our, we were, lived on a country road. We were just about far enough away from Tasty Freeze that they were done with their French fries and they threw out their bag in, in front of our house. And that's just, we didn't think much of it. We would go out and pick them up occasionally. Jeff, go pick up the bags, my mother would say. And we did. And then Lady Bird Johnson came on with this, uh, please, please don't be a litter bug you know, this whole thing. I still remember that song. And all of a sudden, it stopped. And, you know, 
consciousness was raised. It's just, it, it, we, we went from a traditional idea where, you know, my dad and I, we would take our garbage and our, you know, cans and stuff we couldn't burn. Of course, we burned everything. We burned garbage every day in our backyard, smoke and soot and whatever. And we would take the stuff we couldn't burn back to the dump. And everybody had a dump. And it was back in the woods and it was over a, a ravine and we didn't see it anymore. And um, and then one day, the guy who owned the property on the other side came to my dad and said, would you mind stopping that? Because, you know, we're going to build a house and we don't want to look at it. And my dad said, oh, yeah, he was a little sheepish about it. And uh, then the garbage truck started coming. And, you know, this is environmentalism phase one. This is where the rivers and lakes of Western Pennsylvania, where I grew up, the brown cloud in, in Denver, um, the, the, the worst of the smog in, in L.A., was cleaned up. People didn't want their kids breathing in that kind of stuff and not being able to go play in the river. So that's environmental phase one. You clean up your neck of the woods, and that happened. And most people are on board for that. Modernists, traditionalists even, could get on board for that. Phase two environmentalism comes online when we develop a world-centric consciousness. And this is, of course, one of the markers of green, postmodern, you know, cutting edge culture, where we start. And it's, again, one of these sort of spontaneous arisings of our psyche, where all of a sudden we're, we feel the whole world. You know, we feel the whole world system. We start getting interested in other cultures instead of, you know, spooked by them. And, you know, we want to breathe it all in, and we see that we actually, this is our backyard, that there's, there is a limited planet. And we, there are ways in which we've hit the limits in terms of carbon and methane in the environment and so forth. And, um, and, 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 you know, the, the alarms raise. And the oceans are acidifying. And, and you know, there, there's finite systems that we see at world-centric that you don't see before that. And that's a big problem, too, with environmentalism, even non-alarmist environmentalism, is that we're dealing with two-thirds of the population who don't see world-centrically and feel like you're, like, trying to get something over and you're running an agenda on them. And you think that they're stupid. And you do. I listen to Bill Maher, you know. Uh, and the problem is that um, when you, you know, let the anti-modernist impulse of post-modernity, of course, every stage jumps off of the previous one because they're sick of it. And they see the, you know, pernicious downsides of it, you know. And, of course, modernity's mindless growth model, you know, and just eating up the environment. Postmodernity says, stop that, you know, and this is a beautiful thing, uh, but it's still first tier in the sense that every stage believes their worldview religiously, that it is revealed. And so the, you know, religion, uh, the, the, the sort of deep structure that we have that is this idea that we have sinned against nature and we have to be punished. And there is a great flood, an apocalypse coming. This is deep stuff. Every culture has versions of it. And so does green. So does postmodernity. And that's where it's not only doesn't make sense to 
the modern and pre-modern uh, stage of development, but it's um, offensive. It's frightening. You know, you people want to completely put a lid on the industrial society that gives us all the goodies. So this is, you know, an integral way of sorting out what's going on. And, um, and there is stuff going on. I mean, I, I was really sobered by a article by or a column by Thomas Friedman, who I generally think is right on. He's one of the columnists in New York Times, a, you know, reliable liberal, but a smart, I think, you know, integral thinker for the most part. And this is one of his articles called um, Trump, Niger, and Making the Dots Connect. And um, he's talking about what's going on in sub-Saharan Africa climate-wise. And he writes, climate change in the region is so severe that nearby Senegal, Senegal's National Weather Bureau says that from 1950 to 2015, the average temperature rose two degrees Celsius and the average annual rainfall declined by about two inches. In other words, parts of sub-Saharan Africa are already at the heat levels that Paris was supposed to prevent by the end of the century. And the region is heading for a four degree rise, which will lead to the collapse of even more small farms and lead to a mad scramble of refugees towards Europe, compete, competition for food, and more unemployed males ready to join ISIS for $50 a week. Um, he talked about looking at these three maps of Af Africa with the dots concentrated in the middle of the continent. Map number one, the most vulnerable regions of desert, des, des, desertification, desertification in 2008. Map number two, conflicts and food riots in 2007 and 2008. And map number three, terrorist attacks in 2012. All the dots of all three maps cluster around Niger and its neighbors. Hello. So, you know, this is where, the, the, you know, these, these people are the most vulnerable and they're the least developed technologically and in terms of, you know, the ways they think, you know, that are, you know, post-tribal and post-clan and po it, it, it moving into modernity themselves. But it can happen pretty quickly um, when it happens. Uh, we look at Mexico, uh, Sri Lanka, two countries where the birth rate went from seven to one point something, nine, in basically a generation. And, you know, once people, you know, consciousness gets downloaded, it can happen quickly. But uh, these are the people most vulnerable to climate change. So, um, you know, so I go back to Orloff and his, what I consider to be a sort of a fever dream, you know, of, of wrong facts, but still maybe, you know, there, there's an argument and, and I'm open to it. And this is the argument that my friend uses who sent me this, that, you know, there may be prophets of a new truth that people might be getting a download of coming doom. I mean, of course, that's always been true. So I tend to, you know, whatever, but, you know, I don't want to be the boy who cried wolf. And so the, 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 they're actually getting something, but, it's, you know, you can't really present it as fact. You can present it as prophecy. Fair enough. 
And prophecy is, is uh, real. You know, there are people who actually, you know, they're, they, they've got an impulse of something coming. So I, I, I want to stay open to that as an integralist. But, you know, integral actually helps us sort these things out. I was talking to another friend of mine who is very bright. I've learned a lot from her. Uh, and she was telling me that she was talking to a shaman who told her that the world had actually gone off of its axis. And, um, and that that's, you know, was what was true and happening. And, you know, here's where we could sort things out a little bit. Is the world going off its axis actually in terms of the poles and the movement and the time? And it, it was also something about things slowing down. And uh, no, you know, we have the National Bureau of Standards about five miles from here. And they have the atomic clocks and they have, you know, if anything like that is happening, this is what science can do. Science can tell us that the world is actually not going off its axis or time is not actually slowing down or speeding up or whatever it was that this shaman had this vision of. Now, that is the purpose of science is that it rings these superstitions out of the system so that we don't conflate interior revelation with exterior revelation, okay? So what this doesn't mean, so what, what science can't do is uh, deny or discount. It'll try to do both, but from an inner perspective, we actually want to take the shaman seriously. How is the world off its axis? You know, th th that's a whole other question. Uh, in, and it doesn't have anything to do with, you know, making claims that can be easily refuted by science and modernity. So we want both, but we don't want them conflated because then we get all worked up and it doesn't help. All right. So thanks, everybody. Uh, gosh, the end of uh, another week. And uh, it's so much fun doing these daily shows. And I uh, thank you for joining me and would ask you, Corey, what are you thinking today? Oh, Jesus, man. So many, so many needles to thread here. <laughs> you, you know, I, I think the, the, one of the main sort of uh, challenges that the left is facing right now is how to how to convey an appropriate amount of urgency without it becoming alarmism. Because you're right, alarmism just turns people off uh, immediately. And usually that alarmism is coming from, you know, sort of a very limbic place. It's coming from a very emotional, even a very mythological place. As you say, you know, a lot of the sort of deep structures of the environmental movement, uh, at least in this country, are I mean it, it looks like a religion and that's what the conservatives say you know they say you're 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 basically replacing the church with the state and you're you know you're worshiping at the you know altar of this Gaia this yeah well, at the altar of Gaia or the altar of this this sort of globalist you know elite Illuminati plan to right to, well, that too. to, to dominate everything <laughs> yeah. but the thing of it is is you know urgency is Again, completely appropriate. I mean, we've got a guy who is the head of the EPA right now who, you know, what, what's this quote? Uh, 
true, this is what Scott Pruitt said, true environmentalism is using natural resources that God has blessed us with. I mean, this is the head of the EPA, and he's basically saying, no, environmentalism is exploitation. God gave us, Corey, God gave us dominion over the earth. That's right. All the, you know, all the areas. And and we have always been at war with Eurasia. I mean, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's getting pretty twisted. And, and that's where I think a lot of the alarmism actually comes from is the, the obstruction, the, the, the religious, the deeply held religious obstruction that's preventing any of the sensible environmental solutions from actually finding any traction. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, and, and actually, you know, from an integral perspective, we want to say, what's the beautiful piece of this? You know, it ex- expresses expresses itself in alarmism, but the impulse is, what a beautiful, precious place we live in. Yeah, and we we envision a society where everybody has its their place and it's safe, and children can play, and the air is clean, and the water's clean, and there's not too many of us, and nobody's getting dominated. And oh my God. I mean, can we just pause and appreciate the green insight, the green impulse mm-hmm. to create this better, beautiful world? Uh, so, yes, we want that. That, I think, is true of the sacred world to come. Yep. Uh, but, from a, but the other thing that Integral brings to the party is that we don't have to – we could do it from urgency, but not from panic or fear. That's right. Because, the, first of all, those don't help. And secondly, uh, urgency and creativity and taking it seriously and responding. Uh, again, when I the arguments I have with my friend, we actually don't do that much differently. I mean, I wash my lights and I w- w- conserve water, and you know, I was a, a environmental fanatic for years. I refused to use sprinklers, and you know, I would wash out my plastic and never, you know, all that kind of stuff. And uh, and of course, voting. I vote. I want carbon tax. I, I generally let uh, Friedman, Thomas Friedman lead me in terms of policy around yep. environmentalism because he's a, a clearly a, you know active environmentalist, but he seems to have an integral perspective. And, you know, my friend's not that far off, but it's just the story we tell. Right. You know, it's, it's a different, um, and I think that matters. Yeah. Yeah. And Jeff, it's I really appreciate it. Telling, it's a story we're telling to the rest of the culture too. So yeah. we got to get it right. Yeah, that's right. Well, and I, and I really love how you sort of differentiated um, sort of more local environmentalism from more global. And, and, and obviously both are, are required. And the local is really good at, you know, enacting actual policy solutions that will clean that lake or yep. will, you know, reduce that smog. And yep. you know, but what it's not capable of doing, and that's the real pressure from which the global response is coming, is America can play this game and clean up its backyard as much as it wants to. But if India and China and so forth don't also do the same, then we're just wasting money and we might as, you know, we might as well be profiting on our sort of road right. to, you know, hell. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's completely appropriate. But as soon as, you know, I think what it does, Jeff, is it actually foregrounds one of the largest problems that, that liberalism is facing today, which is that most of these green ideas are not being carried in a green way. They're actually being carried in a very amber fundamentalist way. And today's liberals in a lot of ways, I just saw this comparison recently, today's liberals in a lot of ways are similar to the evangelicals in the 90s. In terms of telling you what you can say, what you can't say, what's what's allowed, what's not allowed, and you know, sort of really having this 
as sort of uh, neo-puritanical sort of um, impulse to try to control the discourse. Um, and that's, that's, that's exactly what we can't do, right? That's, yeah. that's, that's, that's yeah. precisely that's, wrong. It's what we do do. It, it is what we do do. And, and it's what, end up in stepping in doo doo. It creates a lot of doo doo. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, <laughs> just sort of personal story, you know, uh, I grew up in, um, in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, which is in Berkshire County. Uh, you know, it was once a, a beautiful city, um, small city, but, you know, just absolutely gorgeous. Has a lot of that, you know, sort of uh, 16th, uh, 17th century architecture and you know it's really pretty and the leaves are gorgeous the foliage is gorgeous it's 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 known for being uh you know it, it's for its environment being absolutely gorgeous so i lived in pittsfield and as I, when i was growing up uh ge general electric had one of their largest plants in the country in pittsfield uh we were we were actually during the cold war i think we were like number eight on the list to get nuked or something because they made some like oh. tracking device for the for our missiles and wow. so, you know it was, it was a it was a sort of a big deal factory in in, in pittsfield and you know ge kind of fucked that town in a couple ways and sort of fucked my family uh so as it turns out, in the 1980s, uh, it was discovered that GE had been dumping chemicals into the water, into the river for decades. And, you know, those, those PCBs basically infected uh, all the water lines. And particularly, there's a lake in the middle of Pittsfield that's very appropriately called Silver Lake. Um, to this day, I just, you know, I haven't been back there in a couple of decades, but I just imagined this large pool of mercury, basically. And, you know, all those PCBs got into the rivers and the creeks. And my grandparents had a dairy farm in the town right next to Pittsfield called Lennox Mass. Um, and the creek ran right through the property. The PCBs ended up infecting the land. Uh, a couple years later, you beautiful know, bucolic creek. I'm sure. Yeah, it's gorgeous. I yeah. I used to, you know, I have my, some of my best childhood memories are Aww. damming that creek with my Aww. cousin, and you know, little did I know I was waist deep in in you know carcinogens. Grandpa ends up dying of cancer just a few years later, completely caused by this. And you know what ended up happening was GE ended up buying all of that property from my grandparents, except for the little yellow house at the end of the driveway where my great grandparents used to live. And now that's where my grandmother lives while watching her farmhouse and the barn and all that get destroyed by GE because they own the property now. And it's, you know, it's an incredibly sad, tragic story. And, mm -hmm. you know, probably gave me a lot of, you know, my sort of, um, I was able to hit green fairly early, probably mm -hmm. because of those experiences. Yep. Right on. Right? So I'm, I'm. Me too, actually. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, sure. I, I, will, I will tell it, but I have a very similar story about how the mines came in and screwed up our creek. And, you know, it, yeah. it, and people just sort of accepted it. And yep. um, a, until they didn't. Right. And this is, uh, you know, the movement forward. And this is part of what came online with the environmental movement of the 60s, which was green. Right. But it wasn't, it wasn't mean green, like some of the stuff I was just pointing right. out. It was reasonable green. That's right. It actually had traction. And a lot of that was cleaned up. And that's what green does. That's green's job is to rein in the mindlessness of modernity. 
Yep, that's right. Technological modernity. That's right. That's right. Well, and doing environmentalism on a lo- on a local level is always going to be easier. It's always going to be easier to muster the political will required to actually enact those solutions because you can feel them. And if you can't feel them, you totally. know someone who did. I yeah. know someone who died yes. of cancer because of yeah. what he did, yeah. right? Yeah. Whereas when we're talking about sort of these, lo- you know, carbon taxes and you know all of this, all right. of this stuff, it's so abstract. And this right. is where again leftism has really failed. And we've had people like Al Gore trying to you know, give us the hockey stick and, and all right. that stuff and trying to, 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 to actually generate more of an emotional response. And we kind of swung and missed there. We went a little too far into those emotional responses. Yeah. No, it's true. And, it's, it, you can't you make people care about a bigger circle of awareness than they have. That's right. You know, for, for a lot of people, even me, you know, reading Thomas Friedman about what's going on in sub-Saharan Africa, I was like shocked and sort of ashamed that I didn't know more about that. Mm. You know what I mean? And, you know, but I, 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 if I talk to a lot of friends or people, they're, they're going to hear it and they're going to forget about the next minute. Or, you know, we live here in Colorado. It's a little warmer, kind of okay with me. Winters are long and cold here, you know, but Uh, as soon exactly, I have to worry about the sea levels in Miami. Uh, but yes, yep. and but you don't until you do. That's right, and, and that's and where we can actually trust emergence as integralists more than you know having this idea that is green. We have to get in there and grab people by the lapel and change their fucking minds. That's right. That's and right. Set them straight. Yep. The only the only way out is through. It's definitely not back. And through means innovation. And, yeah. you know, and, and, and as you say, Jeff, it really, you know, it's one thing to live in Boulder and, you know, I've been here for 17 years and, you know, yeah. I can be like, our winters are so different than they were when I moved here and and they are, but you know, that's not much of an impact. Um, right. But the minute you take the perspective of that Syrian refugee who, whose family was killed by these, you know, terrible uprisings and all of which was fueled by, the migration that's coming from the famine that's coming from the climate change you know that's when you it really starts to land for us and 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 that's those are the stories i think that green should be doing a better job of telling mm-hmm. rather than just trying to either freak you out by telling you how horrible you know this opposing political party is or by giving mm-hmm. you some apocalyptic sky is falling kind of vision no we're going to innovate our way out of this we mm-hmm. always do we always have mm-hmm. um you know so actually david satterley has a sort of a good news bad news comment that he left here i'll read it out loud uh the U. So we were talking about um, earlier when you were talking about Florida. U.S. flood insurance usually makes it a no pain to rebuild. Other areas have flooding, drought, famine that's causing political unrest and refugees. In another century, Canada and Siberia might be growing our wheat. New energy generation technology and material science gives hope for astonishing secure alternatives. Really, I expect several billions to die in the crisis. Uh, but I learned in business that if you really want to force accelerated change, you have to let people suffer the effects of the problem. Uh, you know, thanks for the inspiration and for making me want to slip my wrists, David. Yeah, I don't know about the billions, <laughs> but whatever. Well, know, I, look, I, I, I certainly don't roll it out. I, I, I absolutely, I think it is absolutely possible, and I certainly think certainly think it's probable that we're not going to begin to address the problems fully until we actually start seeing people dying and still we actually, I mean, that's, that's another 
unfortunate part of human nature is that we are really good at adapting once the environment changes. We're not so good at preemptively. Well, and I think, you know, also that, you know, a lot of this just happens from the ground up too, from the bottom up, if you will, with just people getting conscious, people buying electrical cars, people, uh, you know, what's happening in China. I mean, China's actually going through that phase one environmentalism. They just want to clean up their, you know, so their kids don't have to wear masks to school. Yep. Um, and, you know, but as an enlightened authoritarian government, they can do things a lot more efficiently. Yep. Uh, so anyway. Yep. More and to come. Have- lots we do, you know, there's a big, this is a big topic we can sort out over. Yeah, it is. It is. And we have another question from, oh, okay. uh, from a listener, Ryan. Uh, actually, let me just check something real quick. And Michelle has her hand raised. We've, we've got a busy audience today. This is great. Uh, so Ryan asks, what are some, I don't know if we have an answer to this, what are some concrete examples of what Integral can bring to lower right fields, such as urban design, architecture, city planning, and even agriculture? I've heard the term integral architecture mentioned several times, but I haven't seen anything specific in these areas. As a farmer and landscaper, I'd love to see more focus from the integral community in the lower right quadrant. Thanks so much to the both of you for another great show. Well, thank you, Ryan. And uh, geez, I wish I had a a way to yeah, answer your question. Me too. Uh, you know, I, I I always love when people say, you know, uh, the integral community needs to do X, Y, Z, because it's mm-hmm. true. We're just mm-hmm. so new that everything needs to be done. And uh, I don't know much. I have heard about integral architecture too, uh, but, uh, and I'm sure, you know, you know, we want a, a, an architecture that has the it's human scales and it's sustainable. And, you know, there's some things that are kind of obvious that we would see from integral architecture. But what I would say is to Ryan is, come on, man, you tell us what integral yeah. architecture yeah. is. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Send, that's, send that's, me some stuff and I went, I was going to assign you a project. To, you yeah. know, go out there and find it and let us know. Yeah. Well, you know, one, one, one example I can think of, which my colleague, our colleague, David Reardon, talks about a lot, and I can't remember the city. Uh, but there's some city. It's not Amsterdam, but it's I think one of those one of those cities that has been you know really threatened by climate change and by rising tides and all that. And for decades, the response has been to build increasingly higher walls to keep, you know to keep those those uh, floodwaters at bay. And apparently, recently they've completely changed their approach, which is sort of an acceptance of the inevitable in a certain sense. So this is rather than being in, rather than operating from a mode of environmentalism that's largely uh, still in a bit of denial and still has some of that kind of anti-modern, you know, well, if we just get rid of all the factories, the sea levels will go down and, you know, totally untenable. Uh, So I think, you know, from what I understand, what the city did is actually changed the policy. And they said, you know, instead of building those walls higher, because who wants to live behind these massively high walls anyway, instead of building them higher, we're actually going to tear down the walls and we're going to let the water in. And, you know, we're going to drop some hydroelectric, you know, dams all along these sort of causeways that we're creating for the water that'll be rushing in. And we're going to produce, you know, energy out of it. And to me, that was a much more interesting solution. Uh, Mm -hmm. Because it's one that actually says, okay, things are changing. We're only going to be able to do so much globally to change, to to affect the rate of change that we're seeing. So what are the strategies of resilience and the strategies of adaptability that we can actually bring to this? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's huge. I I think actually bringing those 
values, making them explicit, bringing them really into yeah. the foreground of, yeah. of uh, you know, don't just. What's yeah. like in Bonita Springs where, you know, I was talking about where we lived. Uh, the, some of the houses on the river got flooded in this last thing, uh, or Irma. And uh, so the city's buying up the property and turning it into parkland, mm. you know, that can handle a flood. Yep. And that's part of the response. Yep. Uh, you know, it's what you're talking about. It's just a small scale, but that's yep. happening all over the place. The trailer car, uh, uh, court that was flooded, uh, they're either going to have to build it up or move. Right. And, you know, that's tragic, but it's not the frog in the barrel. That's right. You know, that's right. No, I agree. We're not we're not frogs in a barrel. We're more like crabs in a barrel. Yeah, thank you. We pull each other down as we're trying yes. to climb up. Uh, we get crabby. Yeah, we, we do. I, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we have another question from Michelle. So I'm going to bring her on. She should be rejoining as a panelist. Let's unmute her audio. Hello, Michelle. We see the uh, we see your forehead. Hello, Michelle's forehead. Oh, there's Michelle. Yeah. Um, well, hi. I hi. love you guys. I listen to oh. you as much as I can. Um, so thank Aww. you. Um, and I really just wanted to share because um, today uh, my partner and I launched a program um, in a high school where we're really using a lot of integral principles and hmm. working with teens on internships with social um entrepreneurial companies and um we are just getting amazing response um even though a lot of times people aren't you know it's a lot of fun to sort of just work through how to language it how to communicate it what people are understanding how to pull it into you know their frame of reference um but yeah yeah so far what's the what's the basic thrust or what what's the headlighted first paragraph of what you're doing um, so we're setting up basic, so we, we have like real businesses um, that are like social good companies and they give us a real business challenge. Um, and then we take the kids through an eight week internship where they're going to work through the actual. What, what's a typical challenge? Um, so, well, with this company, it's, it's a biodegradable toothbrush. Um, so they've been in business for about five years and they, they want to sell more toothbrushes. So we're going to have the kids sort of just work on that problem, but we're going to work at it from the perspective of, you know, uh, how, how do we look at perspectives? How do we hold mindfulness? How do we look at problems differently? You know, so today, you know, we walked through what are traditional perspectives? What would be the modern perspective? Oh, my goodness. Hallelujah of looking at, you know, and they could immediately identify where they were and where the company was. Um, yeah, we look through just, you know, what, what is the business's perspective from what are they prioritizing? Um, next week, I'm then going to take them through kind of the three, two, one as to like what, you know, what is your communication perspective? Are you going to, you know, talk about this from your first person, your second person, your third person, you know, and just keep kind of uh -huh. work, look through like maturity of competition, immaturity and competition. Um and like you say, I mean, <laughs> rural county in Georgia that picked us up. Um, Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. That's really cool. Yeah. 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 So yeah, I just I had to share with somebody who kind of knew what I was doing because most yeah. Days, you know, no, that's just wonderful, Michelle. Uh, and yeah. you know, stay in touch and keep us posted. It, it'd be fun to have a full report. 
yeah, you know, yeah, maybe definitely. do we could do an episode on it. I, uh, you know, I'm uh, of course any kind of a, a, a real world execution of integral principles is interesting because it's you know we've been thinking about it and talking about it. There's still more thinking and talking to do, but to get actually out there and try it and and get feedback and see what's happening, you yeah. know, is so juicy and rich. And yeah. then also, I just think about these kids, you know, I mean, some of what you're teaching them, I learned when I was 50, <laughs> you know, uh, so I just can't wait to see what becomes of them. So thank yeah, you, Michelle. Me too. Me too. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much, Michelle. All right. Bye. All right. Right. Well, that was great. Yeah, that was, you was, know, I love, I love, fun. again, I, as you said, Jeff, I just love getting those sort of uh, reports of how and where the integral rubber is hitting the road. Right on. Yeah, that's right. And that's cool. it is all over the place. It really is. And when it, you I consider mean, that it didn't exist, the commun integral community didn't exist in 15 years ago. That's right. It's astonishing. It's yep. a blink of an eye. Yep. And, uh, and so uh, God bless us all, everyone. Amen. <laughs> All right, man. You have a great weekend, uh, and we'll see you next week. You too, brother. All right, brother. Bye. Bye.